Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. And we're going to talk tonight about um, baptism again. And tonight we're going to talk about paedo-baptism. So last week we talked about credo-baptism, which is what we call believer's baptism. Credo means, I believe, uh, believer's baptism, which is what we practice as Baptists. And we looked at the biblical arguments uh, for credo-baptism. We looked at uh, arguments from church history that are in favor of of credo-baptism. And then we also just sort of barely touched on the way that the those who hold to pedo baptism would push back against those arguments and, and what they would say uh, in their favor. Tonight, we're going to look more closely at what um, the pedo baptist view is and how they, uh, how their position, um, they try to... Uh, how they would support it from Scripture and with arguments from church history. So remember we said last time that um, baptism, in one sense, is a doctrine that unites all Christians, because all Christians practice baptism. So um, if you, you know, had a group of, belie- of people who claim to be Christians who didn't practice baptism of any sort, we would say, you, you guys aren't even Christians if you don't practice some sort of baptism. All Christians practice baptism. Uh, where the disagreement comes in is on who do you baptize and how do you baptize them, right? So uh, do you baptize only believers, people old enough to make a credible profession of faith? Or do you also baptize the children of believers? And then um, when you baptize them, do you baptize them by immersion in water, or do you baptize by sprinkling? Again, we as Baptists, we baptize believers, those who are able to make a credible profession of faith, and we baptize them by immersion. We talked about the reasons for that, uh, all that last time. Pado baptists baptize the children of believers, uh, and they typically do it by sprinkling. Um, And... uh, we're not going to spend too much time on the sprinkling part. We know why we don't agree with that. It sure looks like in Scripture that most, of, most if not all the time, when people are baptized, there's a whole lot of water around, more than you would need if you were just sprinkling. Um, but the, the bigger issue is um, about who you baptize. In fact, um, you could probably make a pretty good argument that we wouldn't have much of a discussion about how we baptize if we all agreed that we were baptizing adults. You know, um, it makes sense that if you're baptizing infants that you wouldn't want to use immersion. But if that was not even on the table, there probably wouldn't be near as much disagreement about how we baptize because why not? If everything looks like immersion in the New Testament, why not immerse if you're dealing with adults? You know, it's not a big deal. So we're going to talk about how um, the uh, Pado-Baptist view, how that view is defended from Scripture. Remember we said uh, last time I quoted the, uh, Proverbs 18:17, which says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Right? So... Um, our position, uh, the Credo Baptist position, we are 
convinced of, right? We think that it's right. Um, but one of the healthy things about looking at the Paedo-Baptist view is that uh, is a, a couple things. One is it helps you grow in respect for those who disagree with you when you understand where they're coming from. Right? Because if, if all you hear is your side of an argument and you never hear the other side, it's very easy to assume that the other person doesn't have a side. They don't have an argument. right? And then it's easy to uh, sort of look down on them and think, well, the only reason you believe that is because you don't actually read the Bible carefully. Well, if you just look at church history, you know that's not true. Some of some very godly, very diligent students of Scripture have held to pedo baptism. It's not because they didn't study the Bible or because they didn't try hard or because they weren't smart or anything like that. Um, so it helps us grow in respect for those we disagree with, and it also helps us grow in humility uh, when we see that um, even if we still remain convinced of our own position. Right, when we see that other people have good arguments and ways that they can kind of push back on us, uh, it doesn't make us change our mind, uh, but it does help us hold our view with a little more humility and not be, again, sort of high-handed and think, well, everybody who agrees with me is right and everybody who doesn't is wrong and they're wrong because they, they just haven't thought it through as well as I have. Well, no, they've, many of them have thought it through well, too, um, and it's helpful to see how they do that. So, so how do pedo-baptists uh, make their case from Scripture? Now, obviously, I'm not an expert on this because this is not my view. But I've tried to, um, uh, to glean from those either who um, uh, have interacted more thoroughly with this view than I have. So, <clears throat> um, for example... Um, the chief, the chief um, argument, as far as I understand it, the chief argument for pedo-baptism um, is in the connection that they see between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. All right, so they see in the New Testament a link between how circumcision function in the Old Testament and how baptism functions in the New Testament. And since circumcision was applied to all the children of believers, or male children, because it was circumcision, right? But applied to all the male children of believers in the Old Testament, they reason from that that then baptism, which is a similar kind of thing, should also be applied to the children of believers. Right? So uh, one theologian puts it this way, he says, in the Old Testament, circumcision was the outward sign of entrance into the covenant community, or the people of God, the nation of Israel. Circumcision was administered to all Israelite children, that is, all male children, when they were eight days old. In the New Testament, the outward sign of entrance into the covenant community is baptism. Therefore, baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision. It follows that baptism should be administered to all infant children of believing parents. That's the argument from the Pado-Baptist perspective. Now, where does that come from? It comes from one or two passages in the New Testament. One of them, the, the chief one, at least according to uh, one teacher, is Romans 4.11. 
Right? So Romans 4.11, that's why I had you turn there. Romans 4.11 says, this is uh, in the passage talking about Abraham and how Abraham trusted God and how Abraham was made righteous and how Abraham is, is the father of all who believe like Abraham believed. And Paul says there, he says, He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, um, the main point for us there is the first part of verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So, circumcision is a sign, it's a seal, it's an outward um, evidence, if you will, of the inward reality, right, of righteousness by faith. Now, um, I had not really... Um, understood how this worked before in the, the minds of those who hold this view um, until reading this uh, a section of a sermon uh, that John Piper preached on this passage. John Piper, Piper is a Baptist, right? Um, but he has a lot of Pado-Baptist friends. And um, so he was trying to do his best to understand, you know, where they're coming from and explain their position well, even though he disagrees with it. And I'm going to share it with you because it helped me see this in a way that I had not seen it before. Right. So he's talking about the same verse and highlighting the same thing, right, that the, it's, a, it's a sign and a seal of the righteousness by faith. He says, now, why is this important? It's important because it gives a spiritual meaning to circumcision that is like the meaning of baptism in the New Testament, a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. We say that baptism is an expression of genuine faith and the right standing with God that we have by faith before we get baptized. This seems to be what circumcision means to According to Paul in Romans 4.11, circumcision is a sign and seal of a faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, everybody's on the same page about this, right? He's saying, we believe baptism is an outward sign of the fact that we have faith in Christ and we've been counted righteous by faith. We've been saved, in other words. That's what baptism is for, right? And he's saying, Paul says here that circumcision worked in the Old Testament the same way we think about baptism now in the New Testament. It's an outward sign of this inward reality. Now, here's what he goes on. He says, so you see what that means. If circumcision and baptism signify the same thing, namely genuine faith, then you can't use this meaning of baptism by itself as an argument against baptizing infants. Because circumcision was given to infants. Right? So we want to say, baptism is a sign of faith in Christ. Right? Well, why would you give a sign of faith in Christ to somebody who's not old enough to have faith in Christ? Well, Piper says, you've got to be careful. That argument by itself doesn't work. 
against the Pado-Baptist view because they will go to Romans 4.11 and they will say, when Abraham received circumcision, it was a sign of his faith, right? Right, that's what it says. Well, that sign of faith was given to all the children of the Jewish people. So why can't we give baptism, which we acknowledge is a sign of faith, why can't we give it to our children? Hmm. So that's a pretty stout argument, right? Now I'll come back to how we respond to that in just a minute. But let me show you one more passage um, that connects baptism and circumcision. Um, And that's Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. So the the one in, in Romans doesn't actually mention baptism, right? But it talks about circumcision in the same way we talk about baptism. Colossians mentions circumcision and baptism in the same sentence. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says, In him, in Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this is a... This is not physical circumcision like in the Old Testament. This is a spiritual circumcision. You were circumcised, right? And then he says in verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision, having been buried with Christ in baptism. So... Just like circumcision is a cutting off, baptism is a death, and those are really two ways of talking about the same kind of thing. right? You were, you were um, uh, circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, which uh, probably refers to his death. right? He was cut off, in a sense, on the cross, and you have been... You're, um, you know, body of flesh, your sinful nature and all has been cut off by being joined to Christ. And that's what baptism pictures too. So again, you have this connection between baptism and circumcision. And um, that makes a pretty strong argument uh, in favor of paedo-baptism. Now, I remember, I don't know if it was in the same sermon that I quoted from earlier uh, from John Piper or not. But uh, I remember something I heard him say years and years and years ago that has uh, one of those sentences that has just stuck with me. Um, It was probably from the same sermon, but I'm not sure. Here's how he explained the difference between um, the paedo-baptist view about the connection between circumcision and baptism and um, our view of the connection between circumcision and baptism or why we don't see them as connected in the same way. And it was it's so simple but so profound and I think really helpful. Here's what he said. Uh, He said the way you entered the old covenant is different than the way you enter the new covenant. And that's why circumcision and baptism are not applied to the same people. So in the old covenant, you were a member of the covenant people 
by virtue of being born into the Jewish family, the Jewish nation. Everybody who was born into the nation was a member, unless you got kicked out for some particularly grievous sin, right? But that's not how it works in the New Testament. You're not, nobody is born into the family of God by natural birth. Nobody is born into uh, the church or church membership by virtue of being born to Christian parents, right? We'll put you on the Sunday school role, but we're not going to put you on the membership role just because you're born into the uh, family of church members, right? In the Old Covenant, you're born into the people of God by natural birth, into the, the nation, the covenant people. In the New Testament, you join the family of God by new birth, right? By being born again by the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Covenant, it makes sense that they applied the sign of belonging to the covenant to the children of believers because the children of believers were automatic, or the children of the Jews were automatic members of God's covenant people, of the Jewish nation. It was a different kind of people. There was a different sort of boundary, a different way for you to enter. In the New Covenant, though, nobody is born into it. Nobody enters into it by default because of who their parents are. In the new covenant, all of the children of God become children of God by new birth, right? By faith. Uh, it's, and so you don't apply the sign of that covenant, the new covenant, you don't apply that sign to the children of believers because the children of believers have not yet entered into that covenant. You don't enter into that covenant until you're born again. And so, um, again, a pretty sound and solid argument from Romans 4, 11, and from Colossians 2, um, but not an unanswerable one, right? Um, so that, that's the, um, that's what um, Piper calls the linchpin of their their argument, but they have several other uh, arguments they make as well uh, from Scripture. One of them is the household baptisms that we see repeatedly in the Book of Acts. We mentioned this last time. Uh, one example of that is in Acts 16, right? The Philippian jailer, um, Paul and Silas are in jail, and there's an earthquake, and the jailer is going to kill himself because he's afraid all the prisoners have escaped, and that's, I guess, the honorable thing to do or the way to get out of the punishment that you know is coming. Um, and Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. And they share the gospel with him, and he gets saved, and he's baptized along with all of his household, right? Um, and uh, <clears throat> well, said, the way it says it literally is, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So <clears throat> what the Pado Baptists will say from that verse and other verses like it in the book of Acts is when they baptize the whole household, the whole family is included in baptism when the uh, you know, leader, the father or whoever, believes and so, uh, we presume that that would include children and even very small children. And so, we should follow the example that the apostles set for us in the book of Acts by baptizing the whole household. Um, so, 
that's that's another one we talked about last time also the the passage in mark 10 where jesus uh, has the little children come unto him right that's another one that they'll point to um and say you know if, if jesus wanted the children to come to him what what other way do we have to bring or what better way do we have to bring our children to christ and to bring them to the font of baptism and you know to sprinkle them in his name um uh, another verse I just kind of mentioned <clears throat> last time <clears throat> is 1 Corinthians 7.14, where Paul's dealing with uh, different marriage scenarios. Uh, who should you marry? If you are married, how should you behave? What if you're married? What if you're a Christian and you're married to somebody who's not converted? What do you do then? And in that situation, he says, uh, you know, don't divorce if you can help it. If the unbelieving spouse will consent to live with you, then, then stick it out. He in <clears throat> here's his reasoning, uh, verse fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, in what sense are your children clean? In what sense have they been cleansed? Baptism is a a, a symbolic cleansing, right? So that would make sense. Um, if you said, well, I guess if they had one Christian parent, then they would have baptized the children. I don't know. That's a difficult verse no matter how you slice it, right? But that's another one they could point to. And then one more from earlier in the book of Acts, um, chapter 2. Um, in fact, this one cropped up in a, a Wikipedia article about uh, pedo-baptism. And um, we talked about this, the first part of this passage, uh, last week in favor of the credo-baptist view. But if you go a little bit further, there's something uh, on the pedo-baptist side. So Acts 2, 38 and 39, this is what Peter just preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And people said, what should we do? Right? They're convicted of their sin. And Peter said to them, <clears throat> repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. So we would say, who's he he telling to get baptized? Those who repent. And if you repent, you believe. Those are the people who get baptized. But then he goes on to say, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So they they might say, see, aha. You repent and get baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit, which is connected to baptism, that promise is not just for you, but it's also for your children. That's what Peter says. And we would say, yes, it's for our children once our children believe. Right? So, um, but you see where they're coming from, right? You see where they're getting these arguments. Um, what about, so, that, so that, those are their arguments from, from uh, Scripture. What about from church history? Right, we had some pretty strong arguments in our favor from church history last time. What about, <clears throat> what about uh, from the Pado-Baptist view? Well, um, they've got some pretty strong arguments, too. Um, the first one is <clears throat> from an a, uh, early thinker, prolific writer named Origen. Um, he lived... Um, somewhere like mid to late 100 AD to he died somewhere around 250 uh, AD. So 
not too long after the apostles, you know, talking another hundred years or so. Um, and uh, one uh, renowned church historian said about Origen that in the writings of Origen, the custom of infant baptism was taken to be of apostolic origin. He maintained that there was a tradition of the church from the apostles to administer baptism also to infants. So Origen claimed that infant baptism came from the apostles, that he could trace that tradition all the way back to the apostles. Now, if that were true, that would be a very weighty argument. right? If you could prove that the apostles taught that. Now the only way you can prove the apostles taught that is if you have it in canonical scripture from the apostles which we have argued we don't have. Pedo-Baptists argue we do have in the book of Acts examples of infant baptism. Though there are no explicit ones they argue they're implied in the household baptisms. But Origen maintained that that practice of baptizing infants went all the way back uh, to the apostles. Um, Then Cyprian Another author from the early days of the church. I'm not sure about his dates, <coughs> but he wouldn't be a whole lot later than Origen, I don't think. Um, he argued about it this way. He said, if when they subsequently come to believe, forgiveness of sins is granted even to the worst transgressors and to those who have sinned much against God, and if no one is denied access to baptism and to grace... How much less right do we have to deny it to an infant who, having been born recently, has not sinned, except in that being born physically, according to Adam, he has contracted the contagion of the ancient death by his first birth. So, see, Cyprian's way of arguing about it is, look, you take some notorious, terrible sinner, if they repent and ask for baptism, you grant it to them, Right? Well, what about all these children that we have who are not notorious sinners? I mean, they're sinners by birth because of Adam's sin, but they're not notorious sinners. Why would we withhold baptism from them? Now, that only works, that logic only works if you assume that baptism does something for you automatically, right? Either... um, by just the, the act itself or by the virtue of the faith of your parents who are having it done on your behalf or whatever. You have to assume that baptizing an infant actually achieves something, right? It achieves some kind of cleansing from sin, which a lot of people in the early church, uh, the later early church, did believe. Right? Uh, so you got Origen's argument, you got Cyprian's argument, <clears throat> then you got the fact that People like Luther and Calvin and all the major reformers, they all practice infant baptism. In their break from the Catholic Church, they broke with the Catholic Church on a lot of issues, but not on baptism. Or at least not about the issue of paedo-baptism. Uh, before the Anabaptists in the 1500s, those were the, the, they were called Anabaptists because they were rebaptizers. They were baptized again. Uh, they believed that believers should be baptized like we do. 
Um, before the Anabaptists in the 1500s, <clears throat> there have been no major groups practicing the baptism of believers only for about a thousand years. That's, you know, you, you have to reckon with that, you know. Um, I think I said last time, you know, if, if somebody says to you, are you telling me that you think essentially the whole church was wrong about baptism for a thousand years? If you're a Baptist, you got to say yes, but you also need to say yes with a little humility, right? Like, I know it sounds crazy, but I, but you know, the scripture seems to me really clear and even if everybody else was wrong on this issue for a long time, I'm asked, that doesn't change the fact that I don't think the Bible teaches that. I don't think the Bible teaches infant baptism. Uh, even today, not only Catholics, but Anglicans or Episcopalians, depending on where you are, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, etc., all practice infant baptism. Um, some of my uh, heroes, Christian heroes, like J.C. Ryle and R.C. Sproul and Martin Lloyd-Jones, all those guys belong to denominations that practice infant baptism. Um, so at the least, <clears throat> that means I can't be, you know, triumphalistic, you know, and arrogant about believers' baptism because there's people that I, you know, am just happy to sort of stand in their shadow at a distance who would, you know roundly disagree with me on this issue, disagree with all of us. Um, but <clears throat> that doesn't mean that we have to give up our position, right? We still, <clears throat> we can go back to the same arguments we talked about last week. Jesus said, baptize disciples. Right? There, there are no clear examples of baptizing not only infants, but even children. There, there, are no, there are no specific examples of baptizing anybody in the Bible who's not an adult, no, no specific examples whatsoever. Um, and even though there were people who for a long time, there were, there were no people practicing believers' baptism um, for a long period of the church's history, um, uh, in the West at least, part of that is because uh, the Roman Catholic Church had kind of taken over everything and that was their position, and so by default, that was everybody's position who didn't wish to stand up to the Roman Catholic Church. And when some people did, in the 1500s, the Anabaptists, many of them died for it. You know? And I think most of us would at least hope that we would be willing to die uh, for our confession of faith in Christ, but dying for your position on baptism is a little bit trickier, you know? I'm not, I, I'm not going to deny Jesus, right? By the grace of God, I hope, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm not going to deny Jesus. But, um, you know, if somebody held a gun to my head over believer's baptism, that's not as clear-cut of an issue, you know? But there were people who were willing to die for their conviction about believer's baptism. So, uh, for every, you know... For every century of people who, where nobody was practicing believers' baptism, you've got people who are willing to die for it at some point. You know. So, um, anyway, I hope that that at least helps you see where they're coming from, and 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 helps you sort of, you know, respect their argument and and and, and have a little more understanding. Um, 
But uh, I hope I didn't persuade anybody <laughs> to, to be a Pado Baptist because that was not my goal. Right? But I do, I do want you to, to be familiar with where, with where they're coming from because um, like not only, um, you know, like I said, I have heroes who come from Pado Baptist traditions, um, and probably most of us have friends and family who practice pedo-baptism, right? And it is, as we talked about before, when we we talked about theological triage, it is the kind of issue that necessarily divides us into different churches, right? But it ought not to be the kind of issue that uh, divides us from considering one another brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are other issues that may do that, right? But if, if you believe the same gospel that I do, but you practice baptism differently than I do, we're still brothers, Right, we're still family, but um, we're going to have to plant our own churches, right? We're going to pastor different churches. So uh, anyway, any thoughts, questions, comments?